listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. One of the things I find intriguing about reading from a New Testament epistle It can sometimes let you kind of watch as the writer's thinking unfolds. I mean, they are letters, after all. They were written into particular community contexts. In the case of 1 Peter, from which we read tonight, it's written to the exiles of dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, It's written to Gentile Christians living in settlements and towns in Asia Minor. Now, I wrote this sermon on my laptop, which meant that as I went, I I deleted things, and I moved sentences around and reconsidered the usefulness of whole sections. I edited, I shifted. Well, you know how it goes, right? That was all on Friday morning. And then this morning, I opened up my Word doc, and I went through it all again, editing and correcting as I went. It's the way most of us now write. By the time we have a text that we might want to preach, or email, or post on a website, or hand into a professor, it's undergone a whole lot of editing. Now consider the way that the various writers of the New Testament would have done their writing. They'd have been working with some sort of a quill pen, writing on papyrus. It's not so easy to reconsider a sentence or correct your grammar, right? You'd really want to consider each word, each sentence, each thought. And if you did look at something you'd just written and realized it needed some clarification or qualification or fleshing out, the only way to do it was to continue writing. So watch. Watch as Peter's thinking kind of unfolds in this epistle reading tonight. He begins, Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? That's a good thought, right? That's a a noble thought. Who would harm you if you were just trying to do the right thing? Who wouldn't wish that was true? Yet, before the ink had even begun to dry, he probably realized he needed to qualify that thought a little bit. So he adds, but even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. But, like that's the qualifying word. Because he knows that the Christians in those communities are actually suffering. As Kaylin pointed out in her sermon last week, many of the Christians to which this epistle is addressed were people of marginal status. They were women or slaves or poor people or disfigured people. Yet within the body of Christ, they'd found this remarkable new status as adopted sons and daughters of God. And therefore, they were brothers and sisters one to another. Statusless people now with this remarkable new way of being. This is revolutionary. 
particularly in the context of a, a Roman Empire that placed a high premium on social status and birthright. What's more, those Christians are now finding that their identity as Christian is actually further marginalizing them within the view of the empire. They are considered atheists because they don't believe in the Roman gods. They are suspect because they don't adhere to the accepted social norms. Slaves eating with free people? Whether through being socially ostracized by their neighbors or being persecuted under the rule of emperors like Nero and Domitian, they do really suffer. They're exiles, they're resident aliens, they're outsiders seeking to hold a deeper vision in a very unsympathetic and sometimes hostile society. Who will do you harm if you're eager to do what is good, Peter had written? Well, actually we can think of a good number of people who are quite ready to do us harm. And so he keeps scratching his pen across the papyrus. Do not fear what they fear, he writes. Do not be intimidated, but in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be intimidated. Don't let the pressure of being looked down upon or pushed aside or scorned cause you to waver. That's what drives so many of your hostile neighbors, he's saying. This business of desperately needing the acceptance and approval of the culture of empire. Not your way, people. Not your way. Not our way. Not the way. So he continues, always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an account of the hope that is in you. So, in other words, when one of these neighbors notices that in spite of the fact that you're living according to this strange new religion and you're somebody with no status and you're in a community that's not really recognized, you seem remarkably hopeful and they ask you about it, tell them. Do it with gentleness and reverence, he says. Stand steady in your new status as adopted children of God, in other words. They may not be able to yet see it, but the hope you carry is more powerful than anything the imperial culture can even begin to offer. He writes of doing it with gentleness and reverence, yet there's just a little bit of bite here as well that he adds as his pen keeps scratching. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. See the bite? How are they put to shame and when? He doesn't actually go there. But instead he returns to the reality of their suffering that he's now acknowledging as he writes. It's better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. Now, question. That phrase, 
if suffering should be God's will. Is that suggesting that suffering can be of God's will or, or of God's making? I mean, seriously, that, that could be a rather crushing theology if you, if you pushed it kind of to its logical end. If Peter means that cancer or clinical depression or an untimely death or a deep personal crisis, if those things are engineered by God to make us stronger or better or to teach us some hard lesson, now that's a kind of a crushing theology. Maybe, though, we can get closer to the mark that the text is trying to make if we think in terms of what's sometimes called the permissive will of God. It acknowledges that human choices are very real and that human choices of one person are bound up in the choices of others and and in the choices of the whole of the fabric of the culture. Here Peter is saying, I think, that the kind of suffering that these Christians are experiencing is precisely because they are attempting to do what they believe is the right and the good. They are attempting to follow what they understand to be God's will, and it is costing them. That's the way the pieces all fit in the world in which they lived. It is costing them. The choice to live like they did and to hope like they did put them in a place of real vulnerability. And just because they've made those choices doesn't mean that God will pull a rabbit out of the hat and make everything nice and smooth and even. No, that's not the way that the world works. And yet, even that suffering that they endure in the world in which they live does not have the last word. Because at the heart of this vision they're trying to follow is this defining story of how Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. So don't let your suffering cripple you or break you or turn you from the good path you've been limping down. Suffering doesn't have the last word, and in fact, death itself won't have the last word. And here, Peter briefly diverts down a path that has puzzled Bible readers and interpreters and scholars for the better part of 2,000 years. He writes, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which also so his body was dead, but there was still aliveness in the spirit in him. The seeds for resurrection are already being sown in his very death. So he's made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. What is that about? Going to offer proclamation to the spirits in prison who had long ago failed to obey. Well, it's, a, it's actually this text informed an ancient belief of the church in something called the harrowing of hell. 
in which it was held that when he died on the cross, the Spirit of Jesus Christ went to the place of the dead, to Sheol in Hebrew, to offer the hope of the gospel to those already dead. That was a conventional ancient belief. It's frankly impossible to know precisely what Peter was actually writing about, much as preachers and interpreters have been trying for 2,000 years. But at the very least, we can say this much. As he kept scratching his pen across the papyrus to give that community hope, to affirm them in the path they were walking on, to give them courage to keep going under a very difficult situation fraught with suffering. As he did that, he wanted them to know that even as the empire uttered threats of death, it did not hold the trump card. Even at the height of his madness, when the emperor Nero would have Christians tied to stakes in his garden, where, he, where they were then soaked in oil and set ablaze, to provide a spectacle of fire, to light up his parties. Even then, Nero did not hold the trump card. A.K.M. Adam summarizes the force of this evening's passage, pointing to how it emphasizes with fourfold repetition God's determination to bring people to safety by preserving humanity through the ark, by Jesus' self-giving on the cross, by the effects of baptism, and by Jesus' ministry to the dead. That's how Adam puts it in his commentary, Jesus' ministry to the dead. No people have been excluded from God's saving grace, not even the dead. All through time, God has sought to make salvation available. That's quite a claim. By the effects of baptism, Adam notes, which is because that's where Peter eventually lands. He doesn't stop with this odd reference to the spirits in prison. He really wants to talk about baptism. And baptism, he says, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now here it's really important to see the nuance of what he's trying to communicate as his pen keeps scratching on that parchment. He says baptism is not a removal of dirt from the body. It's not a a quasi-mystical, magical, required ritual, in other words, by which you have to get dunked. It's about a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, baptism tied to the resurrection. About a good conscience, though, which means a transformed or transforming way of seeing and thinking and being in the world. Yes, it feels like you're in exile or a resident alien, he writes to them. And it is probable that your vulnerability is going to lead to suffering. But, but, 
this transformed way of being in the world that you have taken on now as adopted children of God is actually about being rightly located, whether your hostile neighbors understand it or not. It's all still true for us. Now, we might not face hostile neighbors, and if we do, it's probably not because of our beliefs. And we certainly, in our culture and society, don't face a brutal emperor, although, of course, Christians in some parts of the world do. And yet it's still true. It's still true that we are called to be transformed, to be eager to do what's good, and to do that without being afraid. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.